So I had a little bit of anxiety last night as we're getting into this new series here. It's, it's kind of related to what we've been talking about, the kingdom of God, and you can see why sovereignty is a good follow-up to that. But we're going to handle this series a little bit differently than anything I've ever done before. Uh, sovereignty is kind of a big topic. I don't know if y'all can appreciate that theologically, why this is kind of an interesting one. And I, I, I had this idea, and nobody stopped me, so y'all can blame our leadership for this. Um, but what I want us to do is to have differing viewpoints shared from the pulpit. Uh, this may surprise you. Leah, my wife, who's a pastor here, and, and myself, we don't always agree about everything. You may <laughs> don't know how much you know. We are very different humans. Um, and, and, you know, we actually come to a theology often through our life story, right? We, we, have, we get a working theology based upon how we've seen the Lord move and how we've understood things over time and, and what has kind of gotten us through that. And so I, I thought it would be a really wonderful take to hear from a, a few differing viewpoints how we've understood God's sovereignty, you know, how it's been revealed to us, like kind of what mechanisms we found that to work through our lives. So um, this, this is not meant to be like a cohesive thing where everybody's echoing the same sentiments. It's actually meant to be different, you know, where the stories that we bring to this kind of colored a little differently. And I think we always do that a little bit when we have a, a whole bunch of different speakers, but it might be and hopefully is a little bit more obvious through these next few weeks as we talk about the same topic, but kind of with our own stories. So just to, to whet your appetite, Acts 5.33 kind of gets us into this a lot. Um, this is when, when the church was beginning to minister the words of God, and it was completely different from what everybody expected who was in the Jewish faith. It, it was sacrilegious to them. It's blasphemous to, to talk about Jesus as the Son of God and to talk about this new gospel. So this is when, when the leaders were kind of coming together, and they, it starts with this. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them, the disciples, to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. His followers were dispersed, and all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. All of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. God's sovereignty means that. God's sovereignty means that he cannot be stopped, right? Even if we were to fail, even if we were to cease, even if our words come to, to nothing, right? God's words will accomplish what they're meant to do. He has that sovereignty. We were talking previously about this diversity. And I, I know that understanding, as I explained how we're going to be going with the series, our understanding of things is diverse, right? And I want you to hear this very clearly. Thank God that your understanding does not save you, all right? Thank God my understanding does not save me. It is not because of how well we get theology that we'll make it into to heaven. It's not because we have the right answers that God says, whew, you know, you had a terrible life, but the answer was C. <laughs> you know, it's not a multiple choice question when we get there to figure out whether or not we get to spend eternity with our Father. 
because it's family, right? Your understanding is not what will save you, but yet we fall on our understanding, yet we put hope in our understanding. And that's really not the basis that I want, want us to have for this. So this is the only week in this quick series that I'm going to be preaching. There's going to be areas of overlap and agreement. There's going to be areas of tension and maybe even disagreement, and that's okay. So again, hopefully you understand where this is going. But when I talk about this myself, when Josh has his understanding on the sovereignty of God, there's three things that I'm, I'm going to try to go through today. The first is the problem of evil. All right. Next is chaos. If you've seen Jurassic Park, you've had at least a primer in chaos theory. And the, the last one being a rejection of magical thinking. This might make no sense to you now. It might make no sense to you at the end, but I'm going to try <laughs> to get you through the way my brain processes these things and how I can understand God's sovereignty. Um, I want to talk about the problem of evil. For me, it really starts around this old idea. And when I say old idea, the problem of evil is, is very old. I, I've got a quote here from Epicurus. And, uh, and he says, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Essentially, this, this has been a philosophical problem for a long time, saying, if there's a good God, why is there ever any problems? <laughs> right? Is he not powerful enough or is he not good enough? Or, or what is going on that we can have this? Here's the quick takeaway. You don't really fall on a theology or have problems when things are going well, right? When your life is going swimmingly and you've got lots of zeros in your bank account and they start with a number that's not zero, <laughs> you're feeling great, <laughs> right? When everybody's healthy, <laughs> yeah, you could pad that thing all the way. Um, when everybody's healthy, you don't worry about this stuff. When things work the way you expect them to, when you understand that the rules of life and everything seems to abide by the same rules, you don't question things. And this has led to so much, I, I think, unprompted leisure in our country when we are not thrown out of our comfort zone. And then something happens, and all of a sudden we have to fend for ourselves, and we start asking hard questions. And we wonder and we ask these things, well, where were you, God? Well, what was going on? And, and our theology is kind of thrown up into the air and we wonder what's going to come out of it. We, we haven't been used to the struggle. We haven't been used to asking these questions because we've been happy and well-fed and medicated and everything's going our way. This question of evil is how we reconcile the existence of evil and suffering with an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God. And that's a lot of omnis. But if God is good and life is good, where's our challenge? And when bad things happen, and I'm not even going to say to good people, we have to start thinking about this. We fall into a, a number of ways of thinking about this, that, that maybe God is good and I'm bad. That's one of the first things that I think we put forward. And, and then we think that this is just justice. It all makes sense if I understand that I'm evil and somehow this is wickedness and, and I deserve this. Or we think that maybe it's distance. Maybe God is just far away. Maybe he's uncaring or unkind. Maybe, maybe there's just some, some separation between us. Sometimes we wonder about God's character himself, and we say maybe God is uncaring. And no matter which way we go down through those paths, I think we're going to end up in a bad place because none of those is really grappling with the heart of this question that, that we know who God is, and we know what goodness is, 
And we have to kind of unite these things together. There's a few passages that, that really make me think about this. Have you thought about the amount of time that the Israelites were in Egypt? It's a long time, <laughs> right? Generation after generation in slavery. God's chosen people in a dark and desperate time, crying out to God. I never liked this passage in Exodus 2, where it says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That, that one always bothered me. You know, it kind of sticks out. It's like, you remembered? <laughs> like, did, did you forget for a period of time? Like, like what, what's the story here, God? Like, how could, how could we be going through this turmoil, this struggle, this darkness, this depravity, and you don't remember? How is this the way that this is supposed to go? And Job, okay, you, you knew it was coming. <laughs> how can we talk about the problem of evil without talking about Job? Reading the book of Job greatly, greatly challenged my faith. Uh, the, the first time that I read Job, um, really, it didn't bother me too much, and it was just one of those curiosities. I, I knew about it, and, and I read it, and then I, I, I moved on. And next time I read it, it was like, oh, there's a few interesting things in there. I'm going to put that on my mental shelf and maybe check back on that later. Then I think I was in my 30s, and I read Job with fresh eyes, and it wrecked me. It wrecked me. You know, because the, the, the picture and the understanding of the world all seems to crumble, and then there's people arguing, there's advice coming, throwing at you. It feels so lifelike. It feels like things that we experience, and, and there's people that are supposed to be your friends that are telling you contradicting things and blaming you and blaming God, and all of this goes on, and you just get to the end, and then God shows up, sets the record straight, and leaves. <laughs> and you're kind of like, wow, what just happened here? I wrestled with that book. Job, in a paraphrase, says, my life is leaking out of me, he tells God. And he says, why aren't you true to your promises? I, I, I bought into a system of understanding. I, I kind of was told that the way that this story works is if you're good, good things will happen. That if you honor God with your mouth, if you, if you, if you say the right things and if you don't sin, life is going to be okay. I kind of bought into that system and it hasn't panned out. I don't know if you can relate to that, but you're like, is everything that I believe wrong? My life is leaking out of me. Why aren't you true to your own promises? And he says, in Job, if we have to play by our rules, O Lord, why don't you? And significantly, spoilers, God never answers Job's questions there. Peter N. says this about Job. He says, because the Bible isn't a Christian owner's manual. God remains shrouded in mystery, inaccessible, beyond our mental reach. And then he says this, you can trust this kind of God, but you will not understand him. There's a, there's a wonderful quote from, from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read that as an adult, you, you really should. But Aslan, the line, who's the, the Christ figure in there, they say, is he safe? They say, no, he's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. C.S. Lewis in another non-Chronicles of Narnia says this, <laughs> Tabby's got it. The, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insolvable so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. I got the British spelling there too, so you know it's really C.S. Lewis and not me. <laughs> it, this, is, this might seem a little meaty, but really ponder what he's saying here, okay? 
you, you've got this problem of evil. It only feels so bad if we don't really understand what love really is and if we think we're the center of the story. If we have a very trivial understanding of love that it, it makes me feel good or that's about affection or, 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 or this dotingness, right? Then all of a sudden, these things don't make any sense. We have a trivial understanding of love or if it's all about me. God's kingdom is about me. God's kingdom, his goodness, his mercy, it's all about me and I put myself on the throne. Then we have a problem again. But if those things are not true, if God's on the throne and I'm a subject, if God is sovereign and I'm not, if love is way more deeple, deeper and, and way more, more palpable and way more experiential than, than, than just making you feel good or forgetting about things that make us sad, if love goes the distance, maybe this isn't a hard problem for us after all. So how do I square this, the problem even with the fact that God is sovereign? I, I think that this is where so much of the kingdom of God hinges around, right? The kingdom of God is an interesting thing, but if it only works because God is sovereign. And that means that God is above it all. That means that the God is the one who's in charge. That means that, that there's nothing above him as we were singing this morning. I, I hate when people have public speaking and they say the definition of things, but I'm going to do the definition thing. Because I think sovereignty is one of the things we, we talk about it, but it's, it's not really something that we talk about often. We talk about sovereign nations, and we talk about these things, and, and we don't quite get it. It essentially just comes from a word, and, and etymology is my, I, I like etymology. I like where words come from. It comes from a French word just meaning above. So it kind of just means the thing that's at the top. Sovereignty is the thing at the top. There, there's nothing above it. You know, that, that, that's it. That's the top of the chain. Top of the food chains, the top of, of the, the hierarchy. The buck really stops there. That, that's it. You can't go to another level. There's no manager you can speak to <laughs> beyond God himself, all right? That's it. God is sovereign. It means that God is sovereign. He's the end of the story. He's the beginning of the story. He is the entirety of the thing itself, specifically within a territory, and that's the kingdom of God stuff. Psalm 24 puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. I'm going to get to that seas and waters thing here in a bit, but remember that that's a part of this, okay? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Well, you know that God is not a micromanager. This might already start to help you with some sovereignty, okay? I don't know if you've ever worked with a micromanager or helicopter parent, if you've got one of those, or if you've been one of those, you know, <laughs> we could talk about a number of different ways. But you know the person who's always checking in and who's making sure, watching over your shoulder, backseat drivers, another way you could think about this. There's this way that we've understood authority that is more of a pesky nuisance, right? <laughs> that it is way more involved than it has to be to th see things working well. God doesn't work that way. I think sometimes we kind of wish he did, but that's not his style. That's not what he wants. That's when he created us and gave us the garden, when things were good and working the way that it was, he wasn't there saying, oh, can you get that weed too? And oh, some more fertilizer over here. And, and ooh, you named that thing cow? I was really thinking camel. You know, like it, it, that's not the way that, that this whole story played out. And you know this maps, really. When you go into, the, you know, Great Britain, when you go into England, 
It's not like the queen is all of a sudden over your shoulder saying, now here are the laws. <laughs> as long as you're here, I want you to do all these things, right? You know that when you go into sovereign territory, that you still have freedom of movement. You still have these things. You know that there's a lot that we can do that doesn't have to do with the laws of the land. That's kind of the way that the Lord set this thing up. In this world, we have free will. Often we use that free will to commit sin. And those things kind of are going to go hand in hand. I don't know if I need much explanation for that, but I'm going to give you a little bit. And then there's chaos. There's chaos. So let, let's, let's start off with sin. What do I need to say about this? Y'all know what sin is, I think. <laughs> Lamentations 3. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? This tells us often when bad things happen, it is the consequence of sin. This is kind of what Job was talking about. This is why Job is troubling. These are the rules he understood. Sin is bad and it distances us, us from God and, and sin has consequences and those consequences are, are hard and, and it's a punishment. And we need to be kind of pulled back and we need to repent and, and that's the way it works. But Job makes it very clear that he was a righteous man. It, it makes it abundantly clear that this was not because of his sin that these things happened. That's why Job is so compounding because this makes sense. And we understand this too, right? Sometimes we sin and things happen. Sin brings distance, it brings complication, it brings confusion, it brings shame. When I began preparing for the sermon, I didn't realize that 9-11 was gonna be the day before. And I'm not a politically minded person where we don't speak about things often like this, but we're right on the wake of it and we still haven't forgotten how hatred and greed and violence the sins that we commit, sin done to us, the pollution of sin in this world have shaped us and affected us so deeply. One thing that I personally took away from 9-11 20 years ago was a need for a God who is eternal, who is just, and who is sovereign. Because it seems completely unfair that somebody who wants to do so much evil and so much destruction can quote-unquote get away with it. There, there's nothing you can do to the hijackers. There's nothing you can do. They're beyond our reach. And I realized for there to be justice, for there to be goodness that wins out, it needs to be outside of this world, right? He needs to exist outside of even time itself. Like, for there to be justice, we need a God who is sovereign over all. And believe it or not, I'm going to quote, quote George Bush, who spoke yesterday regarding 9-11, and I thought that this was one of the most remarkable things for what we're talking about. He says this, in the wake of 9-11, all that many people could initially see was the brute randomness of death. All that many could feel was unearned suffering. All that many could hear was God's terrible silence. There are many who still struggle with the lonely pain that cuts deep within. Many of us have tried to make spiritual sense of these events. There is no simple explanation for the mix of providence and human will that sets the direction of our lives. But comfort can come from a different sort of knowledge. After wandering in the dark, many have found that they were actually walking step by step towards grace. It's actually a fantastic speech. What a way to understand sovereignty 
in the wake of 9-11. What a way that th- this is what we were thinking, right? This is what we were wondering. Who's in charge? Where, where can we go from here? What can we trust? What can we hope? Do we know that there's goodness coming? Or what was the story behind this? How could this happen is what a lot of us were asking. When we understand sin, a lot of that pain and distance makes sense. Isaiah, when he came before the Lord, says, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, from a people with unclean lips. I want to tell you that, that often in this world, because of the presence of sin, a distance from God makes sense. It actually is, is a mercy. And, and the amount of time it takes a lot of us to wake up to what the Lord has called us to is a grace. Because when we understand the wickedness of our own sins, the depravity of the human mind, the things that we have chosen to do, if we were to just be thrust into the presence of God, we are undone. I I hope you really understand this. Like, I, I feel like we're not so comfortable in God's presence that we don't understand that he is holy and we are not. But he has made us and he's called us. But you know what? That takes time. That takes shaping and forming us. It, and, and I'm so grateful that God has given me the years to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, that I can come before him with rejoicing. Because there was times in my life where the idea of actually coming before the Lord filled me with dread. And I was worried about the, the sins of my heart being laid bare. The prophetic people scared me. I don't know if you've ever felt that, right? You're, you're worried that somebody can see inside your soul and they're going to say, whoa, right? Because we have a glimpse at the ugliness of our human hearts and the goodness of God who's called us to something more. There's a tension and a nuance here, and please understand that because of Christ, we do come close, and it's good, and it's where we belong. Scripture says that when we were still sinners, when we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. Thank God that we have this whole world, this whole timeline to work these things out because as a people we're not ready we're not worthy we're not done yet we'd be undone like wax so that's sin free will though is a whole other thing now I'm not going to get into all the free will and predestination stuff but I think I can say safely we can all agree that, that free will interferes with God's sovereignty right if God is sovereign and I choose to do something that doesn't line up with his sovereignty, did I just trump God's sovereignty, right? That's kind of the, the, the question we have here. But here's the thing, and this, this is remarkable to me. God greatly values our freedom, like a whole lot. Like God wants you to be free. And, and, and it, it's I, the first time I read this in, in scripture that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. I thought, what a dumb passage. <laughs> Like it's so, it just repeats itself because I didn't appreciate what freedom really is. But it's an amazing thing when you realize that the value of freedom is what the Lord wanted for us. That this is the thing. He, he wanted you to be set free. It's for freedom that he said, not to enslave you again, not, not to control your every thought and your every action, not to put you in a box and say, now don't you move. You're like a little pet and I'm going to keep you confined in the space so that you can't do wrong. He wants you to be free. It's for freedom's sake that he set you free. There was a teen that, that I was ministering to who went off to college and I, my heart broke for this kid because he called me late at night 
terrified. And I, and I, I was, it was hard. It was a hard-pressed conversation trying to figure out what was going on. He goes, what if I made the wrong choice? So what, what do you mean? He goes, well, what if I'm going to the wrong college? What if the woman I'm supposed to marry is going to another college? I chose wrong, and now I'm not going to meet the woman I'm supposed to marry. This kid was so worked up about the, the fear that his free will was going to contradict God's sovereignty, that, that, that we have the ability to mess up God's plan. I don't know if you've ever thought anything like that, but my heart broke for him because that's not God's goodness being displayed for you. That's not freedom to be who the Lord has made us. It, it's this terrible second-guessing and worrying that we've gone down the wrong path, that if you're well-intentioned, that if we're doing the right things, that maybe still God's sovereign plan is, is a mystery, and if we miss it, we're just out of luck. And we've screwed this whole thing up. And, and what are we supposed to do? This poor kid was worked up. And we talked about this and talked about how good God's sovereignty actually is. You know, that it's for you. Like, like that God's goodness is going to see these things through. A blank page is terrifying to an author without a story. A blank canvas is daunting if you're not Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of what we do with our free will is actually very powerful. The fact that God has set you free to live your life, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Are you going to use it for his own ends or are you going to use it for your own? Do you, are you going to acknowledge God's sovereignty because you are free or will you try to make yourself sovereign because you've been made free? And finally, I want to talk about this chaos. So sin, free will, chaos. This is where Josh is maybe off in a way that you haven't thought about before. Before there was sin, there was chaos, okay? Colossians 1, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, when you read most creation narratives not in Scripture, when most people groups are trying to figure out where we all come from, they all have a very similar story, is that there's some God who's battling chaos and bringing order out of chaos. And you see this with Zeus. You see this with uh, the Babylonian god Marduk and the Canaanite god Baal. They both battle for control with the god of the sea, which is the symbol of chaos. Now, what you see in Genesis 1 really puts all of that into light. So to understand that, that you're somebody that the Israelites are talking to and they're, they're sharing their faith and you understand that Marduk battled chaos to bring this world about, that that's where the goodness came from was that, that your God set chaos at bay. In Genesis 1, you don't see God struggling with the forces of chaos and chaos is not considered a God. In Genesis, the primordial waters are not even personified, but according to Genesis 1, God created those waters. And by merely speaking, he turned chaos into cosmos. It's a remarkable thing to understand that, that God is not battling chaos, but chaos is something that is a part of his creation. And chaos was there before there was sin. That's remarkable. We know, we know the story. You, you know where we sinned and we messed things up and we introduced depravity. We talked about sin. We did that. But there was this notion of chaos there before there was even humans walking this earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. It's also important to note that while there's these chaos terms will later take on sinister overtones, this original chaos was not evil. God created this. So chaos isn't a result of the fall, and it doesn't hold ultimate power over God. It's a part of creation. In fact, there was a washing basin at the temple when we got to Temple Jerusalem for ceremonial cleansing that was called the sea. It was meant to show the heavens and the sea and harken back to creation itself. But what happens is we see in Revelation 21 the great promise that there will be no more sea. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? Does God hate water? Like, does he, is he not a fan of water sports? Revelation 21 says there will be no sea. And what he's saying is there will be no chaos. There will not be this deep. There will not be this thing that, that comes out and just overwhelms ships and loses you to this, this vast nothingness. Here's a story that's hard for me to tell. The very first full funeral I ever did was for a kid. Um, I, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, obviously. But there was a, a little boy in the church, and um, he got hit by a car. And he was reported brain dead. And um, it was on my daughter's birthday. And I ran to the hospital and sat with his family as they are trying to figure out what was going on. And I watched the family struggle with his health, his declining health, and, and the doctors he didn't know. And I, I prayed. I cried out to God for this kid. I don't know if you all are aware of Robbie Dawkins, but Robbie Dawkins is a friend, and he's seen amazing, miraculous things. And I called him up on the phone. I said, help. <laughs> I'm with a brain kid, a brain-dead child right now, and uh, I'm, I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. Like, let's, can we just see this kid come back to life? Like, like something. His dad was handling it fairly fine because he was blaming the driver. I was with him in the waiting room when the police came in and the police said, we reviewed the footage, the driver's not to blame. And I saw the dad crumble because he had this anger, he had this sense of justice, he had the sense that he was wronged and now all of a sudden there was nothing. He couldn't blame the bus driver, he couldn't blame the driver, he, he couldn't blame any of the people that were around there because nobody had done anything wrong. The, the boy had just run out into traffic. When I was going towards the service, the grandfather was going to handle most of it because the grandfather was an army chaplain and uh, he wanted to honor his grandson and, and do the service. So I had a, a small part that I was going to play as, as the pastor of the family. And this was a, a, a child, and you can imagine hundreds of, of people are coming to this funeral service. And as the crowd is coming in, the grandfather's a no-show. He just couldn't do it. I don't blame him. So I'm unprepared, and the family comes up to me, and they say, hey, can you run the entire thing? Forgetting the notion of what's going on, the only answer is yes, of course, but I was completely unprepared to handle an entire service. It's also the first one that I've ever done, and I just started crying out, saying, God, what do I say to these people? And I came to Revelation 21 very quickly, that there will be no more sea. The enemy wasn't man. The enemy wasn't sinfulness. The enemy wasn't the sin that, that this kid had done. They're, they're, those stories weren't the story that was being told here. <laughs> this was like cancer, which seems to strike randomly. We've had miscarriages in my family. There's this loss that we experience, and you want to blame somebody. You want to you find an answer to it, but 
that's not the story that's being told. And so I preach that there will be no more sea in the kingdom to come. That chaos will not reign. That we won't suffer like this. And I'll tell you, it was in stark opposition to what a lot of the people were saying. People were trying to make sense of it with all sorts of ways. People were preaching numerology. You know what I'm talking about? Talking about the number of years that this kid had lived and and what they could conjecture because, you know, of, of all this math that they could do. And it broke my heart because we're grasping at straws, trying to find answers because you're desperate. Because it hurts. And, and if you could have an answer, if you could find some justification, that, then maybe it'll be, it'll f- it won't feel so terrible. But we've missed the fact that chaos is a component of this world. And it doesn't trump God's sovereignty. Let me tell you, it's an insult to God to say that he's striking children with cancer. It's an insult to say and to make God this abusive person who's dealing out punishment to people all the time. It's an insult. But let's wrestle with Isaiah 45, 7. If you can look past the, the King James Version, you might see something more. The King James says, I make peace and create evil. But this is what, uh, what we'll have in the ESV. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does the, all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God's sovereign over it all. This is not an easy answer. All right? Me saying that there is chaos is not going to be like, oh, great, now I understand. No. It's hard. Because sometimes we screwed up. Sometimes other people have done this to us. Sometimes you can find some way to blame that, that brokenness and evil and sin has done this. Sometimes it feels random. Let me say, dear church, this is the heart of why I think this series is hard and important because we know this, but sooner or later, you're going to get hit. Death, loss, sadness, confusion. And you can cry out and pray and say, Lord, let your healing hand come, and yet death still comes. We have to remember that chaos doesn't outrule God's sovereignty. It doesn't. It doesn't. It was something that he created, something that he brought into this world. Why? That's an argument (laughs) that I will make. But otherwise, if we're looking for a quick and easy answer, we tend to find and assign blame. We struggle for reasoning and we make friends with doubt, bitterness, and cynicism. You can see people who life has hit them hard and they lose their faith, right? Because they didn't know where to turn and it just didn't make any sense any longer. A friend of our church, John Barnett, lost his adult child to cancer while she was pregnant. And he wrote worship songs. And we sang some of them recently. (laughs) that you're still the God, still like honey on my lips. And that shows me something about working through this with a sovereign God rather than running off on our own. Chaos is in the Bible. And it's important to notice in Revelation 21, it says that there will be no more sea. 
doesn't even exist when all things are made new. It will be put down. But it's a component in this world. It's a created component in this world. And I think that's a logical place for me to say that our understanding of sovereignty collides with something that I call magical thinking. And this is personal. You know, there's just the hope that everything's just going to work out magically like in a fairy tale, and they lived happily ever after. You know? Your hope that, that if you pray the right prayer, everything's just going to be fine. That there won't be a, a consequence, that there won't be a loss, that there won't be a suffering, that this story won't, won't feel like it does now. And there's this hope that God is just going to kind of click his heels together, or that he's going to wave a magic wand or something, and it's all just going to be okay. This is when we expect a God not to act as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to act as Jesus Christ, but to act like a genie or a fairy or our own personal favorite deity, whatever he might be. How do I know if I've gone into this magical thinking? If it's transactional, if I expect I do X and then Y and Z will follow, I'm not respecting the sovereignty of God. If I have this transactional approach that if I'm good enough, things will work out, right? I try to curry God's favor by, by doing whatever I can and thinking that's got to be the answer. And in that, God isn't a God that he made the world and said it was good. And with magical thinking, we have this need for escapism, to discard this world, that we want to live in, in detachment from facts and reality and understanding or we expect that there's going to be a God who plays by completely different rules in a completely different reality. We expect the supernatural to be a fairy tale. We expect this to, to just make sense if I could just get over there to that spot. And we want to throw out the hardship. We want to throw out the suffering. We want to throw out the questions and the doubt and, and all the stuff that we've worked through and just say, but over there the grass is greener, but, but over there it's going to be fine. And we forget that even when we see in Psalm 23 that he leads us to green pastures through the valley of the shadow of death, that's our Bible. That's our hope. It embraces the hardship, embraces the loss, it embraces all the fallen nature, and it never blinks. That chaos is put in its place. It doesn't rule over God, but God does not move away from it. And so many times our theologies are weak. Whenever we say, we'll handle the good, but we kind of ignore the bad. Whenever we think that as long as everything's good, it's sovereignty, but whenever it's bad, well, you shrug your shoulders. What can you say? It's still sovereignty. With magical thinking, the supernatural isn't even connected to the natural. If you just think about those words, supernatural is tied to the natural. It's when God intervenes in amazing ways and there's miracles and things break forth. But in, in magical thinking, it's like we've gone back in time. It's more like the science fiction where we just want things to just be differently. Like what if? And all of a sudden we can just picture that, that maybe if I hadn't done that, that God would set everything right. The kingdom of God then, sometimes we see it as heaven, is just an escape. And it's not a reality. God's sovereignty in magical thinking overrules this world, not a God that rules this world. A sovereign God with magical thinking would remove me from pain, from struggle, from unfortunate events, from chaos. It's a God who's at odds with the world rather than the creator amongst his creation, bringing us back to health, bringing us back to relationship, bringing things back to the way it was until all things were made new. With magical thinking, I want an escape, not just from judgment, but from consequence. 
And to me, this is where the whole thing turns on its head. I, I tell people when I'm doing premarital counseling that you're not marrying an idea of a person, right? You're marrying a specific person. <laughs> you know, that that man or woman, they have a backstory. They have likes and dislikes. They have things that you appreciate, things that you don't. And you have in your mind probably what this marriage is going to be like if we were perfect humans and this was a stereotypical man or stereotypical woman. And you know how it's going to go. That is never the story of marriage. You marry a person with flaws, beauty, and problems all mixed up into one. And that may sound really simple, but that actually has been a turning point in a lot of premarital conversations because we understand that a bit. We want people to fit these ideals, these model men and women, and we expect them to behave as we expect them to behave. And it's the same thing with God. God is not a generic deity. God is not just some theology that we hold on to that we can understand because he's, he's a God, so therefore you are X, Y, and Z, and therefore you will do X, Y, and Z. He is a living, breathing, ruling sovereign. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has watched over creation from its very inception, when it was an idea in the Trinity's head to create all these things. He is a God of personality and uniqueness, not to be found amongst the, the theologies that people have put together, not a, a God like Marduk and Baal. He is a God alone because he is the real true God. He is the sovereign, and there's nobody above him. That means history has worked itself out alongside a God who cares, who loves, who knew his son Jesus would come and save. God is not generic. God is so, so specific. So when we come to him, when we ask for him, it's not a generic request that we would make a plea to any deity. We are calling on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who set free the, the Israelites from the Egyptians, the God who sent his son to die on the cross. It's so important we know who he is and what his character is like. The way God enacts his sovereignty isn't through a force of his will. It's not through micromanagement. He's not some magical caricature. He's chosen to use the church, and I've argued with him about that. <laughs> but he has chosen to use the church. He's chosen patience and time. It's been a long time. He's chosen kindness to lead us to repentance, not to force our knees to bend. He's chosen self-sacrifice over taking the throne by force. He's not a generic God. He's a specific God, and that's what he looks like. That's my Lord. That's my Savior. The reality that we see can really be seen through this lens. A God who is sovereign and. He's sovereign and patient. He's sovereign and kind. He's sovereign and self-sacrificing. You could argue that he shouldn't be. You can argue that it's not effective. But I'm going to read a little bit more of this from Isaiah 45. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. 
I love Isaiah. <laughs> Who are we to argue back? He's the Lord. He's the one in charge. He set these things right. Back to C.S. Lewis. We're not the center of the story. God's sovereignty isn't explicitly for my benefit, but I want it to be. That's not the story. My take on sovereignty may be as simple as this, that he is sovereign, but we humans don't let him rule and reign, and he doesn't force us, which is a shame. <laughs> and so we have consequences. And then we seem to be surprised at that, as if there should be a magic word or a magic wand that the church of Jesus or the angels should exercise on our behalf. But letting God rule and reign, though, is not the same thing as trying to not just worry about it. All right? This is, this is where we start getting into application. Saying God is sovereign is not an excuse for laziness or inaction. It's not just saying, I'm just going to not worry about this. God's got it. He's in charge. All right. I'm, I'm good. It's not taking our hands off the wheel and assuming Jesus will drive the car for you. Don't do that. <laughs> That's magical thinking again. There will be no consequences. God's in charge. I find that God's sovereignty is often seen when we exercise our authority, our gifts, our hard-wrought morality and God-given character and lending it to the task at hand. He's formed us. He's shaped us for these purposes we are vessels to be used because God is sovereign. We are to give ourselves to him because he is sovereign, that he can see his goodness in this world around us. So now I have to counter the idea that, that you might hear that God helps those who help themselves, and, and where is God in this anyway? But Matthew 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, we have a component. We do something in this. It's not all God and none us. Anne was sharing in pre-service prayer about Nehemiah, this, this man who, who is rebuilding Jerusalem after the exile, who had the ear of the king, who had people who were encouraging him to do the things that needed to be done. And Nehemiah knew that, that he had to use his position, his words, his power to physically rebuild the walls. What if they just said, God, rebuild these walls, and then they're like, why isn't the wall done? <laughs> That's magical thinking. See, so he's just going to rebuild itself. The temple's just going to rebuild itself. God gives vision and purpose and calls people to tasks, and that is God's sovereign right, and he does it to his people, and we respond in such a way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is the work we're called to. Because God is sovereign, it's light and easy. Because he's sovereign, it's not about us trying to be creative. I don't know, so many, so many times I think, we struggle feeling like I need the right words or I need to do the right things and we, we try to get our creativity summoned up to like, this will be, I can, if I'm creative enough, I could save the world for Christ. Like, I just need to spend myself harder or better or differently and, and be novel in my thinking. I think God sometimes needs a shovel. <laughs> John Wimber says that he's a nickel in God's pocket to spend any way that he wants. 
And I think we don't want to be a nickel in God's pocket. We want to be a blank check. We want to be a, a million-dollar bill. Do they make million-dollar bills? I don't know. But, <laughs> but we, we, want, we don't want to be a nickel. We want to be spent in some powerful, unique way. God is sovereign to spend us in any way that needs to be spent. Sometimes I think of sovereignty like a cruise ship. The boat is on its course. You know you're going to end up in New York or the Bahamas. I don't know where your cruise ships go. I don't know where you're sailing. But at any given point when you're on that cruise ship, you can play shuffleboard. Probably not shuffleboard. What do you want to do? You want to watch a movie? Go to the buffet? (laughs) Right? On the cruise ship, you have free reign to do those things, but you know where that cruise ship is going. You can't stop that. (laughs) You're a passenger on this thing, right? The captain's in charge, and he's taking this boat where it's going to go. God's sovereign. He's going to get us where he needs to go. Any day, we might be doing things that are, are helping or hurting that cause, but God is sovereign. We're going to end up where we need to be. By my own two hands, I can't derail or even help that boat along. I'm saved by grace, not by works. Sometimes I see it like this, that my job is to grab the outliers and bring them under the sovereignty of God. All the things, all the ideas, all the things that are outside that, that aren't submitted yet to the rule and reign of God, to submit them to that. When I see brokenness, when I see broken bodies, sickness, to bring that into the sovereignty of God. When I see a person who's suffering from a a lie that's been told to them, when they're still enslaved by by falsehoods or by a, a bad system, to bring the sovereignty of God to them, that they're close to, that they can see that this is a better way. I got to go to New Orleans with my family. There was a guy who wanted to do a magic and comedy show And so he turned to the crowd and he says, all right, on the count of three, everyone laugh. Because then people will think that I'm funny and they'll come. (laughs) And so he counted to three, the 10 people that heard him laughed loud. And sure enough, like 50 more people showed up to figure out what was going on. I thought, that guy kind of knows how to work a crowd. (laughs) It's kind of impressive. He gave us a job to make his crowd. He was the one who was going to do the show but he needed us to kind of play that part. God doesn't need us, but he allows us to do that work, to bring the lost sheep in. He gives us the the, the words to speak. He gives us the gospel message. He gives us power and authority to bring things under the sovereignty of God. How wonderful that we get included in his work. Our prayer, our intercession, our evangelism, our ministry, that's all that we do. God, you're sovereign. Would you be sovereign over this? Would you reign over this too? Remember this. Remember me. Remember this person. Spend your sovereignty for the benefit of this person. He's the vine. We're the branches. Job 42. I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's sovereign. So I gave you those three things. Free will, sin, and chaos. And amazingly, all those are only resolved by God's sovereignty. I need God's sovereignty to set me free. (laughs) I need God's sovereignty to reign over sin, to heal me from the brokenness that's brought. I need God's sovereignty to reign over chaos, where there's no more sea. Sovereignty without our engagement, though, is just magical thinking. Without a truly sovereign God, there's no hope, no salvation. Jesus would still be in the grave. We're still enslaved to sin. With a God only concerned about sovereignty, then the character of Christianity is changed because we're enslaved once again. 
I gotta quote Lord of the Rings at least once. When the there's the beautiful good elf queen and she's tempted with the, the ring of power. She resists that temptation and she says, instead of a dark lord, you would have a queen, not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn, temptuous as the sea, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. God could be sovereign and nasty. <laughs> He's not. He's sovereign and kind, sovereign and patient. That should not make us think that he's not sovereign. Because he's shown me grace, that doesn't take away his authority to put me in my place. You might have heard this, that suffering and tragedy reveal character. It's true. Christ's character was revealed on the cross. When things are going well, it doesn't challenge us. When things are going bad, something comes out of us. Like I, I can get angry when things aren't going well. I, I, and I, I'm not an angry person, but all of a sudden I'm angry. Or I'm, I'm, I, I feel all, all these sorts of frustrations or cynicism or doubt or bitterness. All these things whenever things don't start going well. And they're in me all along, but tragedy brings them out. So on the cross, what do we see? When Christ is met with his suffering and his distance from God, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he was cut, he bled forgiveness. That's our sovereign king. Our sovereign king is not such a, a, a hard being that he just wants to reign and be in charge and just put everything in its place. He bleeds forgiveness. He bleeds welcome home. He bleeds and says, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's our God and our king. It's not just that he's powerful and rules, that he's so good through and through that he has our interest even whenever it's him who's on the cross it's been said don't waste a good tragedy that's a hard word I hope you actually can hear that for what it is don't waste a good tragedy so this is the, the turning point question for me that I want to pose to you what evidence does your life bear to the fact that God is sovereign people see you, if people know you, if they hear you, do they know that God is sovereign over you? Some of you might be really challenged by that, and you might be scratching your heads. Like, your life has been formed by a theology that's unchallenged, and you haven't needed something external. But what do we do because God is sovereign? Do we just chill? <laughs> just let it be? Ephesians 6.13 Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you've done everything. Stand. It's remarkably simple. <laughs> he wants you to stand. He wants you to be there. He, he wants you to find yourself grounded and secure on him, on the, on the pure foundation, on, on being where he's planted you, on, on being who he's made you to be, that, that you will not be torn down by chaos, by sin, by loss, by suffering, that you will stand because you've been made able to stand, that, that there's nothing that this world can throw you that will tear you down, that you won't lose your footing. You will be able to stand because he is sovereign. Because of a sovereign God, equip yourself. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. God's sovereign, let's stand. Let's equip ourselves. Let's pray for all people in all times and all situations. When we took a poll in leadership, um, people were hard, having a hard time. You know, there's, there's so much division. And y'all hear this on television commercials. This isn't new, right? I want you to know that God is sovereign. I want you to have peace and rest and inspiration from that. That we don't drop our heads and go meekly and quietly into a corner and wait for everything to blow over. <laughs> but we stand. We stand firm. We stand clearly on who our Lord is and that we pray for all things and all people. And the outcome is not to us. We do what we do and the Lord is sovereign over this. He is going to get this ship safely to harbor. Okay? I know that. Could be a week, could be a month, could be a year. It could be 30 years. The, the, the Israelites were in Egypt for generation after generation, but God is sovereign. That's an encouraging note. And he bleeds for you. On the cross, he bleeds for you. Our good God bleeds for you.